So, yes, the children will remain with us, and perhaps, if needed, the adults nearby can help them find 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in their Bibles. It will be good to follow along in your Bibles this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is where we find ourselves. Now, children, I'm talking to the children first, but this goes for maybe all of you. There will be some things in this sermon that you will not understand. But there'll be a lot of things in this sermon that you will understand if you're listening. There will be a lot in here that you can understand. And so what would be really good for you to do, if you or your your mom or dad or whoever's nearby has something you can write on or draw on and write or draw with, anything you hear that you do understand, write it down or draw a picture of it. That would be really good for you to do, you kids. It might be really good for you to do, you adults. I don't know how you can listen without taking notes to anything. I don't, I don't understand it unless I write it. So I take notes also. So that might be helpful for all of you. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, proceeding along the course that we have set. And we'll start in verse 26. As you're finding it, as you're getting something to jot notes and doodles on, I want to remind you that one of our very highest callings, one of the best things about being a Christian, is that we get to come together and worship God together. Yes, you can worship God, and you do, and you must worship God on your own at home and in your car and at work, but one of the best things that we have as Christians is that we get to come together and worship God together. It's one of our highest callings as Christians, what we're doing right now, singing to him and praying together and receiving his word together. It's awesome. This is when we realign ourselves to reality, who God is, what God has said, who we are as Christians. But sometimes worship gatherings can go bad in various ways. Sometimes they can just be boring. This is not one of those times. But sometimes they can even be damaging and negative, and hurt us. So, the passage we're in today, Paul has been dealing with a bunch of Christians whose worship gatherings have been damaging, whose worship gatherings have not been good. They've been really disorderly, they've been chaotic, and they've been troublesome. And for many, many weeks, we've been looking at what he says about how to use your spiritual gifts. And this passage is summing all that up. This is the big finale of stuff we've been thinking about almost all summer. The big idea, as he sums up his argument, is we are to love one another with our spiritual gifts, using them to build each other up in Christ, using them to help each other trust and follow Jesus. That's how we're supposed to use our spiritual gifts when we come together. They're for each other. They're not for ourselves. We're never to compete with one another at church in any way. We're never to compete with one another with our spiritual gifts. And when we do this, when we use our gifts in our gatherings to build each other up, the result is really good gatherings, really good church services, church meetings, where people are encouraged and trust Jesus better, follow Jesus better because of it. When we don't, when we use our spiritual gifts in a negative way, That's when we get to those damaging gatherings that we do not want. Has anyone ever been to 
a disorderly, even damaging church gathering? Okay, some of us have. I don't know if I would go as far to use those words, but I've been in some definitely disorderly church gatherings. And I've heard about some damaging church gatherings. We don't want to ever do that. I think our church gatherings are generally pretty good. Maybe sometimes boring, especially to the younger ones. But I don't think they're damaging. We want really, really good church gatherings. So let's listen to what God says in his word here. He sums things up in verse 26 of chapter 14. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Everyone could have a potential gift to bring to a church gathering. Everyone could potentially have something given to them by the Holy Spirit to offer and contribute in any church gathering. Some of us who have kids have the joy of giving our little kids a quarter to put in the offering plate when it passes. And it's a joy for us. It gives them a chance to participate. It's a joy for the child. They have something to contribute. That's what it's like for us as Christians. When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everybody, every Christian can have something to contribute when we gather together. This should be one of the things that we anticipate as we move toward a Sunday. Not just what am I going to receive on Sunday, but what might the Lord give me to give that might build people up? This should be part of the conversation after a church gathering, not just critiquing the food or the teaching or the preaching or the music, but thinking about, man, God gave me something that I was able to give to this person in conversation that built them up. What a joy for me, a sinner, to be used like that. Or, man, God gave this person something that really encouraged me and built me up in Christ. That needs to be a central aspect of our experience of church gatherings. The problem, however, if each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, if they're all trying to share these things at the same time, if it can become chaos, that's what was going on in the Corinthian church. I think of it like riding the school bus as a kid. I remember being on the school bus. I've always had a low threshold for what I call racket. Just a lot of people talking and a lot of noise where you can't understand any of it, and it's just racket. I have, for some reason, I have a low threshold for noise and volume, and so school bus rides were an endurance challenge for me. It sounds like the Corinthian Christians, when they got together, it was like my childhood school bus rides. Everybody had something to say, and they were all saying it at the same time with no order, and it was chaos. Everybody has a potential contribution, but it is to be ordered and filtered with one question. Will this build everyone else up? If so, then we should say it. And if not, then we should keep quiet. That's what he says in the second half of the verse. Let all things be done for building up. So imagine it it like this. Imagine that the spiritual gift that God gives you to contribute on a Sunday morning actually came in the form of a physical box. I'm kicking myself because I had a physical box to be holding right now. So imagine it. So through the week, 
you know, starting on Monday, during the course of your quiet times and your prayer times, something comes to you. Uh, it's a, a revelation, something in the Word that you've never understood before. Or you're reading a Christian book or talking to a friend and something clicks. It's a lesson that is really meaningful to you and you think, oh man, I wish I could share this with my church family. I'm going to remember that. You know how that happens. You put a mental mark on that memory. I'm going to hang on to that because I really want to share that with my church family. Or what comes to mind is a hymn that really is meaningful and you think would be meaningful in the life of the church right now. And you think, I want to, I want to sing that sometime soon. So instead of just the idea, imagine that actually um, God sends a drone with a, a box that drops with a little parachute and it lands. And so you've got your gift in a physical box. And it happens to each of us throughout the week. Doris, it's a hymn that she wants to share a quote uh, that is meaningful to her. Uh, for Phil, it's a lesson, something that he's learned that he would like to share with his church family. For Ethan, it's a, a prophecy, a revelation. And we all come into church on Sunday morning. We've all got our box or our boxes. Some of us may have a bunch of boxes. And we're just dying to share these gifts with the people around us. Now, what Paul is saying is you don't come running in with your gifts and just say, Wah! everybody just throw them in. It's just chaos. It says you hang on to your gift and you look for an opportunity when that might build up the other people. And here's the tricky part. It may be that no opportunity presents itself and you actually go home with your gift and you hang on to it until a more appropriate time. That's what the Corinthians just did not get. If they had something to say, they were going to say it. They didn't understand that not everything that you have to say needs to be said right now in this moment. They needed to have self-control over how they spoke. Now, so this gives us a picture of what worship must have looked like back then. It must have been somewhat spontaneous but also orderly. The application for us is, I hope we have plenty of room for everybody's potential contributions. Now, I know right now I have the face mic. I'm the one speaking. But through the course of a Sunday morning, we have lots of different um, settings where people can share their gifts. In the prayer meeting this morning, we started by saying, What's God been teaching everybody this morning? And several people had something to share. And that gave shape to our prayers. In Sunday school, there's more opportunity for back and forth. During the fellowship time, there's opportunity for conversation. There's lots of chances for you to make your contribution on a Sunday morning. Be looking for it. Be expecting it. That's what we're here to do. So the point is, everybody can have a potential contribution. But only those that are going to build everybody up need to be shared. Otherwise, you need to keep them to yourself. Now, he's going to apply this to three different situations. People who speak in tongues, prophets, and women. That's right, women. That's going to be the interesting part when we get to that. So hang with me. First, he applies it to speaking in tongues. Verse 27, he gives the guidelines for when to use this spiritual gift and how to use it. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. So the guidelines for speaking in tongues. This is, again, a foreign concept to us, but in many sectors of the church, this is a prominent practice. Here's some guidelines for it. One, limited quantity. Two, or at the most three. 
We're not going to have four, five, six, fifteen people speaking in tongues. Two, logical sequence. Not at the same time. Uh, this is pretty remedial stuff, but take turns. Don't talk over each other. And three, accompanying interpretation. Somebody's got to be able to make sense of what you're saying if you're going to share it in gathered worship. There's no place for a bunch of people shouting a bunch of gibberish at the same time because it doesn't build anybody up. Now, we get all that. We understand that. Let's move on into verse 28. Here we see when someone with the spiritual gifts of tongues needs to keep silent. Verse 28. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Now, please don't phase out, because I know it's tempting. This is so removed from you. You do not have the temptation, I don't believe, to speak loudly in tongues over top of me while I'm preaching. It's never happened. But hang with me, because this is going to help us understand the bit that we're going to get to in a minute about women. Okay, so be listening now. So, when to keep silent? When there's no one to interpret what you're saying. In that case, you have a legitimate gift. You have your box. God gave it to you. And you want to share it. But in this case, even though it's a legitimate gift, you shouldn't share it. You should keep silent. There's an alternative offered here, though. You don't have to throw your gift away. Keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. That's a gift for you to take home and open up with just you and the Lord. Okay? So... We get that, I think. Move on. Paul's going to apply this principle now to prophecy. People sharing revelations from God. First, the guidelines in verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So here, first guideline, limited quantity. Two or three people need to share something God's revealed to them. Have you ever been to a Baptist funeral where multiple ministers are involved? I've been to those. I've participated in those. They could go on for hours because any Baptist pastor, I come from a Baptist background, that's why I feel comfortable saying these things, is going to have a lengthy sermon. Paul says, two or three, let's keep things reasonable here. We're not going to have 16 prophets sharing their prophecies in one gathering. The other guideline, accompanying discernment. So those speaking in tongues need someone to interpret Prophets need people to discern what they're saying, make sure it's legitimate. Um, That word, weigh what is said at the end of the verse, that's going to be really important again to understand the next paragraph that we're getting to. It's, you picture someone sifting through things, like my my, um, kids play Legos a lot, and you hear them just sifting through the Legos. The idea is that somebody in a setting, maybe picture more like Sunday school, somebody might say, you know, I think God has revealed this to me in the Word. Blah, 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 these things. And then they sit down, and then the rest of the people think about it and say, you know, I think you've got a point here, here, and here, but here, what you said doesn't quite match up with this Scripture. And so they discuss it, and they weigh it, and they sift through it and make sure it's accurate and it's good. Now, just like with those speaking in tongues, prophets, there's a time when they just need to keep silent. Verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So in other words, 
if you're sharing what you had to say and you're kind of going on and then another person sitting there, he gets an idea of something God brings to him from the word. And you kind of can tell in a setting like that, somebody has something to say and they're waiting for their chance to break in with it. And sometimes the one speaking will just be filibustering the whole meeting and they're just talking. He's saying, when you see that somebody else has a word to share, draw what you're saying to a close and have a seat and make room for them to share also. Be considerate in these situations. So here's a time that prophets need to silence themselves. Though they may have legitimate, helpful things to say, if it's going to trample over another prophet, they need to sit down and be quiet. Why? In this case, we get a reason. Verses 31 and 32. For or because you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. So here's the reason you need to operate this way. Hang with me, guys. I know this is a tough sermon. It's tough to prepare. It's tough to listen to. But it's important. Why operate this way? Because you can take turns. This shows us how immature these Corinthians were. Paul has to hold their hands and say, take turns. Don't just come together and try to shout over each other. Operate with some maturity here. You are capable. You can all prophesy one by one. So that, that way everybody can learn and everybody can be encouraged. Okay, children, you must get the sense between the lines. Paul's like, let's be reasonable about this. Now, why should the prophets weigh and sift through each other's prophecy? Verse 32, the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. A prophet is to be submissive to the other prophets. This is central to being Christians together. We submit to each other. We stand back and listen to each other. We submit to what each other says in humility. They were getting a culture of shouting over each other and domineering each other. And that's not who we are in Jesus Christ. We are meek, we are humble, we are loving, we are yielding to one another as brothers in Christ. Now there's a transition verse, verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. That's clear enough. Where there's confusion, God is probably not at work there. But where there's peace, harmony, things are in order, God very well may be at work there. Second part of the verse, as in all the churches of the saints. You would not believe how many pages and commentaries are written trying to figure out if that phrase is applying to what came before it or what comes next about women. As in all the churches of the saints, is he saying that what, I, what he already said is for everybody? Or what he's about to say, this very difficult paragraph about women, is for all the churches? I don't know, and I don't really think it matters. Either way, we are going to head into one of the very hardest paragraphs I've ever had to preach to you. This is the paragraph that made me not preach this section last week. Because I just wanted to make sure I understood it before I proclaimed it to you. So let's, without further ado, let's just read it, okay? And I don't want to, don't be throwing anything at me, and don't be storming out. We are going to figure out what God's Word says as best we can, and we're going to submit to it as God's Word. We're going to let it shape us. So I'm just going to read the paragraph. Hang with me, and then we'll walk through it. Verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak 
but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So thanks for coming this morning, everybody. (laughs) Y'all have a good afternoon. (laughs) I make a joke to break the tension because that that is intense. That is an intense paragraph of Scripture. Now, what you don't want to do is come to God's Word with preconceived notions of what's right and then make it say what you want it to say. You want to let it speak for itself. But you also don't want to come to God's word and take it sort of dumbly out of its context and make rules from it just by that phrase. The fact is, this paragraph has been a challenge for God's people for generations to make sure they understand. And there's differences of opinion on the right way to understand it. Now, at the risk of seeming extremely arrogant... I think I do understand it, and I've worked really hard to come to my understanding. So I'm going to share with you my understanding of it, but I do it in humility, and I do it letting you know that there are people far smarter than me who come to slightly different conclusions. Not dramatically different conclusions, but slightly different. And if you want to discuss these things further from here, let's let's do it, because we need to figure out God's Word together. Now, before I get into walking through this so we can understand this, remember that when you read a letter in God's Word, you're reading one side of a two-way conversation. When Meredith gets on the phone at home or in the car, I know within 30 seconds who she's talking to and what they're talking about. I know Meredith well enough. I can tell by how she's using her voice, who she's talking to, almost before I even hear the content of what she's saying. Only by her side of the conversation. And then if, I, if I'm beside her long enough, I even know what they're talking about. Even though I don't know what whoever's on the other line is saying, I get it from what she's saying. And you, you figure it out with clues. You, you put clues together from the one side of the conversation to figure out what's being discussed here. Exactly. Now, the danger in interpreting anything based on one side of a conversation is misinterpreting it altogether because you're missing the other side of it. So you might get confused. So keep that in mind as we walk through this passage. Paul is responding to correspondence that was sent to him from the Corinthian Christians. So we are midway in an ongoing conversation. Paul doesn't just lead with this out of nowhere. This has a context. This is coming from something that's going on. So we get into the passage in verse 34. The women should keep silent in the churches. When he talked about tongues and prophecy, he gave some specific scenarios, but here he just launches in with just some straightforward statements. No guidelines, no specific situation offered, just another instance in when someone should keep silent. In just a first reading, it seems like in this case, the time to be silent is when you're a woman. But there are all kinds of problems with that. For one thing, there are many problems with understanding it that way. Just a wooden interpretation that women at all times need to be silent whenever the church is gathered. No woman should make any noise whatsoever. Silence. 
There's many problems with understanding it that way based on the rest of Scripture. The one that I'll point out to you that's most pertinent to us is that just a couple chapters back in chapter 11, Paul assumes that women are speaking in church. They're praying out loud. They're prophesying in church. And he just moves beyond that without any correction whatsoever. So it seems that women were speaking in churches and not corrected for it, except in this case, something's going on. That's 11 verse 5 if you want to flip over and look at what I'm talking about. So he says women should keep silent. This is the third time that word silent is used in our passage. The first time it was for those speaking in tongues without interpreters. Y'all need to keep silent. Second time it was for folks who were prophesying and somebody else was trying to speak and they were domineering. They need to keep silent. And then here, applied to these women. It's to hold back legitimate speech for the sake of order and for the sake of the worship service to be edifying to everybody. Now, why? The women should keep silent in churches. Here's the why. For, because, they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Now, there's even confusion over exactly what he's talking about here. Where in the law is he talking about? Who is permitting and not permitting? But boiled down, basically, it seems like, in other words, what he's saying is, what he's referring to here is not practiced or allowed. It's just not done. Whatever he's talking about is just not done. Now, once again, we know that women did participate in worship gatherings. They did pray. They did speak. They did prophesy. What he's talking about is not permitted. Also in the law. And that women should be submissive, using the same word that was used of prophets to one another, Prophets should submit to prophets, and women should be submissive. Although here he doesn't say to whom, at least not yet. There's more clues in verse 35. Verse 35, I think, holds the key to us understanding what in the world this is talking about. So there's three clues I want to point out. See if you can catch any clues as we read the verse again. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now the first clue is that first bit. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask. So this gives us a clue as to what he's talking about, what he's responding to. He's not talking about the positive contribution that these women in question are making. He's talking about their response to what's being contributed. They're wanting to learn something. They're wanting to ask something. It's not so much about what they're wanting to proclaim at this point. It's what they're asking and how they're asking. This word ask is a pretty intense word in many places in the Bible. It has a range of meanings like our English words do, but often it's translated interrogate. It naturally has the sense of, and one of the dictionaries put it this way, to accost with inquiry. Have you ever been accosted with inquiry? Interrogated? That seems to be the force of the language here. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask. Let them accost their husbands at home with inquiry. Let them interrogate their husbands at home. So remember the context of this, what led into this. If you were able to hang with me through the beginning, you'll remember. What he was talking about as he flowed into this line of thinking was that time in the church gatherings when someone had issued forth a prophecy, and everybody was chewing it up together, was sifting through it, trying to understand it together. 
Now, that would make sense if that's the problem he's talking about. If it had something to do with the way these women were participating in this process of discerning prophecy. Now, maybe they were interrogating and accosting with inquiry a little too strenuously or in a disorderly manner or over top of other people. He doesn't say. But it seems to have something to do with that part of the worship gathering. Okay, the second clue. Let them ask their husbands at home. Now, remember back in chapter 7, Paul thinks singleness is a great thing. You know, it's not that all women are wives. Some women are not wives, but these women seem to be wives. These women seem to have husbands. So it seems like he has some specific women in mind, and it's the one with husbands, the ones with husbands. The third clue, and this is the one for me that I think has the most weight, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. For it is shameful. That means disgraceful. It's improper. It's sordid. Shameful. I think one of the reasons we struggle to get immediately what he's talking about is our culture doesn't think about shame the same way ancient Near Eastern cultures thought about shame. There was called shame honor cultures. Have you ever heard that term? There's still modern day cultures that are this way. It's about shame and honor. You know, American culture tends to be about fame or obscurity or wealth or poverty or popularity or obscurity. And for these cultures, it was about shame or honor. This is what was important. And shame was a very serious thing back then. And we, we barely have shame in our culture. People walk around immodestly dressed, no shame about it. People post things on the internet for the world that would have been so distasteful just 30 years ago, 40 years ago, but there's no shame. But Shame was significant there, and I think shame was a problem in this church because this isn't the first time that it's mentioned. The first time that it's mentioned is back in chapter 11. Now, if you're really astute, you'll remember when I got to chapter 11, once again, I did not feel like I could preach it because I just wanted to make sure I understood it, and I ended up instead writing about it on the church website, on the blog. You can find it there. But that's a passage about head coverings. And there again, he's talking to the women about their head coverings, and it's all about shame versus honor. What is decent versus what is indecent. And the idea there was, you women need to wear your head coverings, because when you don't, you shame your husbands. Now, for us to understand why that's important, you have to understand that back then, if you didn't wear your head coverings, you were immediately assumed to be a very immoral woman. The head covering was just the culturally understood symbol of chastity and morality and uprightness. So even if the, the Christian women and their freedom in Christ were very chaste and moral, if they whipped off their head covering and went out in public, Paul knew that everybody was going to think that this woman is really, really immoral. And therefore, culturally and publicly, she would be bringing shame upon her husband. And Paul was saying, just don't do that. Consider your husband. And how you come to worship service. Wear your head covering so you're not shaming your husband. The second time we see shame mentioned was how they treated the Lord's Supper. The wealthy people would come first. They would eat all the food and leave the poor folks sitting in the back with nothing. And he said, you're humiliating them. And it's the same word. You're shaming them. 
And there's no place for that in the Christian church. And then here's the third section where we see it in this situation. Head coverings, Lord's Supper, how they were going about sifting through prophecies. They were shaming people. Now, all through this letter, Paul has said, you need to care more about loving other people than your rights. So yes, in Christ, you have the right not to wear a head covering. But what's more important than that is honoring your husband out of love and not shaming him. I really think this is about women who were, in a distasteful way, interrogating their husbands during the prophecy part of the service. Husband stands up, shares something he learned in the Word. Maybe the wife knows the husband well enough to know that he said something hypocritical. I don't know. But stands up and questions him, questions him, questions him, questions him, to the point that the others around are starting to get a little uncomfortable. Like, gosh, this is awkward. And in effect, shaming him publicly in front of the church. And that's why he says, if you have something you want to learn, go interrogate your husband at home. Don't do it in front of the whole church. You're not here for you. You're here for what's going to build up everybody. And you doing this doesn't build up everybody. It tears your husband down. It builds you up. When to keep silent. I think this is about when to keep silent in regard to prophecies. And I think it's a sub-point about what he's already said about prophecies. I don't think it's a new thing, a new subject. I don't think this passage reads like, when to keep silent in regard to speaking in tongues, when to keep silent in regard to prophecies, and when to keep silent in regard to gender. I don't think that's what it is. I think it's when to keep silent in regard to tongues, when to keep silent in regard to prophecies. One, when your prophecies are trampling other prophets and not giving them a chance to speak. And two, when you're interrogating your own husband in front of everybody and shaming him. I think that's what it's about. I could be wrong about it. There are people with other understandings of it. Some people think it shouldn't even be in here at all. They think somebody wrote it in at some point and it's not even supposed to be there. I don't think that... There there is evidence. I mean, these are smart people, but I don't think that's what it is. Some people think that he's quoting the Corinthians, something that they said. And there's evidence for that because he does that. I don't think that's what it is because it's way longer than any of the others and it just doesn't flow like that. Some people think that it just says what it says and this is the truth and women need to keep silent. That's very few, but some people do think that. I don't think that's what it's saying. So I've given you my interpretation. I think it makes sense. I think it makes sense of the remaining paragraph. And I'll read that to you real quick. He goes on, he says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So he's still thinking about prophecy. Even after he gets past this bit about women. It would be weird for him to just jump completely out of that and be like, oh yeah, and also women. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. The tone of it is as if he's encountering an aggressive, interrogating, antagonistic group within the church. Now, he wraps it up. So, my brothers, here's his big conclusion earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. He doesn't say in conclusion, 
earnestly desire to prophesy, do not forbid speaking in tongues, but do forbid women to speak. I don't think the women was really a big point for him. I think it was a sub-point about the prophecies. And that all things should be done decently and in order. I also think this makes sense in light of the big idea that we talked about at the beginning of this whole chapter, which is that we're to love one another with our spiritual gifts, use them to build each other up, rather than to use them for competition and to try to make ourselves look better than one another. And doing so would lead to orderly worship gatherings rather than disorderly worship gatherings. So, there you go. That's my best understanding of this very difficult paragraph. Thank you for listening to me through it. Children, thank you. When it's, a, when it's one of these services, usually I try to aim the whole sermon to be child-friendly, but I couldn't put it off again. I put it off last Sunday. You may disagree with me on some of these points. There's room for that. This is not one of the central doctrines, doctrines of the church. There's room for discussion on this, and I welcome it. Let's keep thinking through it. There's other hard passages that pertain to this subject, too. But I'll leave you with some closing questions. Do you come to church gatherings determined to get something out of it or determined to give something to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you think mainly about yourself in regard to your participation in church or do you think mainly about how you can bless everybody else? How has God gifted you to contribute to building up the body of Christ? And last... How will you use your gifts and contributions to help others, even this week? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your guidance in studying this. I have asked you, and I want to ask you again before all these people so that they know, I have asked you to guide me to what's true and to protect me from saying anything that is in error. But I ask now that if I have said anything that is in error, that you would make that plain to us. I'll come back next Sunday and correct it. I'll come back and clarify anything I need to. We just want to know what you're saying. We want to obey what you've said. And we don't want to wriggle out of it. We also don't want to be simplistic and misunderstand it. So help us. And with the bigger ideas, which are crystal clear, help us to be obedient. Help us to be here for one another, not just here for ourselves. Help us to be agents of edification. Help us to build one another up in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.